Hello, friends, and welcome to your spring 2020 COVID-19 literary theory podcast. I hope all of you are doing okay. I'm excited to try and connect with you and to share ideas about the readings. And I, I thought that I would go back and provide an overview that would help us to put into context and perhaps hopefully understand with a little more clarity or some confidence some of the ideas that are coming up and that will be coming up in, in some of the more difficult readings that we'll be thinking about this semester. The good part about those readings is that they can really help, I think, to put previous readings in perspective and you begin to see, ideally, the ways that the different theories that we've been reading little snippets of begin to fit together now, before I dive in here and say some things about Ferdinand de Saussure and his course in general linguistics, it will be handy if you have your textbook or a PDF of the textbook at your disposal. I'm going to talk right now uh, about uh, things appearing on pages in the original textbook 59, uh, 60, 61, and thereabouts in my PDF, that means if you're looking at the thumbnails around page 78, uh, yeah, 78, 79, 80, thereabouts. So, so Saussure is a Swiss linguist, and what we have here are notes from his lectures. Now, let me just pause and say that there's some irony in that, okay, that, um, that we only have notes from his lectures. It's going to play into a whole trajectory of analysis and critique that unfolds in the 20th century as pertains to language and the relationship between speech and writing. And so, sir, one of the things that he does very early in his course in general linguistics is that he says, I'm not talking about writing, I am only going to talk about utterances, about spoken language, about and, and really try and isolate a single utterance and say, what can I learn about language from this single utterance? Uh, and so, Saussure, and this is where Derrida will come back and comment on this, but Saussure decisively chooses early on to focus on the voice, on speaking, on the utterance, okay? Uh, another distinction that Saussure draws is between the sign, which is going to consist of two parts, a sound dash image, sound hyphen, sorry, sound hyphen image, a sound image, and a concept. So you have sign, you have the sound image, and you have the concept. Now, this gets very muddy very quickly, but these are the terms. This is how Saussure defines his terms. You also have, by the way, the actual object. So in his example, he talks about tree. I suppose that he's uh, French-speaking Swiss. Uh, arbor 
is the word that he's using for tree. And he says, well, I'm just going to talk about the sign sound image concept. The actual tree is not my concern, but the tree, he does assign a term, which is the term referent. So he has isolated the sign consisting, because he's thinking about speech, of a sound-image, which you hear the sound, image is in your mind, and then there's a concept connected to the sound image. Sound image will become what he calls the signifier, the concept will become what he calls the signified. The actual tree, not his concern. The referent, not his concern. This becomes relevant especially when we work our way back around to people like Baudrillard, post-structuralists, who are thinking about a, a world in which we are entirely, it seems, communicating through surfaces and dealing only with surfaces. And the referent, the reality, the actual object seems always beyond our reach and everything seems to, have, to be mediated and negotiated through media all varieties of media, whether it's language, video, uh, uh, television, the radio. Did I already say radio? Anyway, you get the idea. But back to Saussure in these pages, uh, in the original text of uh, 59, 60, 61, famous portions of his notes from this course that he taught that were collected by his students and reassembled as his course in general linguistics. On page 62, the top of page 62, he assigns these famous names. In, in the world of critical theory, this is, I don't know, this is like a famous Bible page. This is like the, the origins of structuralism being, being birthed here. Uh, it's like the Adam and Eve moment for structuralism. And if, it's ironic as he puts it, uh, ambiguity, he says, would disappear if the three notions involved here the sound, image, concept, and sign were designated by three names, each suggesting and opposing the others. Of course, we know ambiguity did not disappear, but as he says, ambiguity would disappear. If the three notions involved here were designated by three names, he's suggesting and opposing the others, I propose to retain the word sign to designate the whole and to replace concept and sound image respectively by signified and signified. The last two terms have the advantage, he says, of indicating the opposition that separates them from each other and from the whole of which they are parts. of structuralism. I've gone back and said some and called your attention to 
Ferdinand de Saussure's course in general linguistics, where we find the root of the vocabulary that informs so much uh, that is written in the realm of critical theory and literary theory in the latter half of the 20th century, the roots of the those terms signification, sign, signifier, signified. And so Sir makes a couple of other observations about language. Uh, one is that he says these signs are arbitrary in the way that they are assigned. In other words, what in one language is tree and another language is arbol. Uh, it doesn't, uh, those, 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 that terminology is arbitrary. There's no natural, uh, special, magical relationship between language and the world. This goes against a number, I believe, of religious traditions. Hebrew, for example, for uh, within Judaism, there are a number of ways that particular words, uh, as I understand it, or particular words have are considered to have a special divine kind of uh, aura built into them. So Sir says, no, that's not how language works. He's a 20th century uh, social scientist, and he's approaching language as, uh, as one might study uh, the animal kingdom or something like that. And so he wants, he wants to figure out its system. And he says, in fact, he's not even interested in history, per se. He's not interested in etymologies or the way that words have developed over time. He wants to, as he says, stop the game. Uh, freeze the game. He's interested in a synchronous kind of study of language. Uh, he makes a comparison to a game of chess, and you stop the game of chess, and you halt it mid-play, and you see where the pieces are arranged and what the relationship is to one another. And that's what he wants to do when it comes to language. I think of Lego blocks and thinking about language as a kind of system of Legos where you know, some of the connections are vertical, some of them are, operate more on a horizontal plane, and somehow you can mix and match these pieces, of uh, signs, so that they together can, can, can become some kind of built structure. Um, remember that Saussure has also set aside the real world. He said the referent, let's say the actual tree, that's not my business. I'm just dealing with utterances, with speech acts. Um, all right. Another oft-noticed aspect of Saussure's course in general linguistics appears on page, uh, let's see, originally on page 70 in your reader, in the, the thumbnails, that would be, oh, I guess around page 89. Everything that has been said up to this point, Saussure writes, boils down to this. In language, there are only differences. Even more important, a difference generally applies, implies positive terms between which the difference is set up. But in language, there are only differences without positive terms. Whether we take the signified or the signifier, language has neither ideas nor sounds that existed before the linguistic system, but only conceptual and phonic differences that have issued from the system. The idea that phonic, the idea or phonic substance that a sign contains is of less importance than the other signs that surround it. Proof of this is that the value of a term may be modified without either its meaning or its sound being affected solely because a neighboring term has been modified. It is this statement in language that there are only differences that becomes very significant for Derrida and something that he plays with over and over again in difference and in playing with the term difference. And we see in Saussure 
a system being set up, a system of differences where we know what one thing is because it's also by being that thing, not that other thing or that other thing or that other thing. Uh, all of this, very, think of all of the various synonyms. There are a number of ways of thinking about these differences, but one way of, of thinking about it is to think of all of the various synonyms that mean something very similar, yet not quite the same thing. Right? So things that you might find in a, in a thesaurus, if you um, angry uh, is not the same as frustrated, is not the same as disenchanted, is not the same as uh, uh, bereft. You know, there are endless gradations of words that refer to similar categories of things, but the way that we distinguish them is really by their differences from one another. This aspect of dealing with differences is something that will come up in the work of Helena Sexu, also in the work of other post-structuralist writers, where the, sometimes the binary terms that are defined in opposition to one another, like man-woman, which is something that she spends a lot of her um, the essay that we're reading of hers talking about, Sexu, C-I-X-O-U-S, in her work, we can see her playing with this play of differences and calling attention to one of the phenomena that becomes significant for post-structuralists and people uh, in, interested in Derrida and deconstruction. And that is that when you have two binary terms that are in opposition to one another, there's usually, or I think she says in every case, a term that is considered to be superior and a term that is con considered to be inferior. So there is a hierarchy that emerges. And there's also a strange quality in which Defining one thing in opposition to another thing also means that two, those two things, though defined in opposition to one another, are linked in a way that makes them actually, um, in a strange way, very much interdependent. And rather than being uh, entirely existing on their own, they come to be very much intertwined. You can think about race in this country as an example of that writ large. So Saussure gives us this terminology, and then the next reading that I would like to call your attention to is on Blackboard. It's Roland Barthes' Mythologies, and uh, we were going to have a presentation on this text. That presentation never happened, but it's really a vital text, I think, or a valuable text for understanding how Saussure's first uh, initial ideas about the study of signs, what becomes known as semiotics and what becomes also known as structuralism, how that interest in the study of signs is transformed, is um, elaborated and complicated and made use of in sometimes really, I think, fascinating, interesting ways by various scholars. Uh, Roland Barthes is one of those scholars. Michel Foucault is another. Uh, there are others that, that we'll talk about as well, and of course, we're already uh, have have dipped our toe into people like uh, Baudrillard and Derrida, and of course, they are also steeped in this Saussurian understanding of language and and the idea of a world of texts and the texts being comprised of a series of signs or patterns of signs. And now, in looking at Barthes, just to say, I'm I mentioned that the reading is on Blackboard because I'm distinguishing 
the excerpt, the long excerpt from mythologies that I've given you on Blackboard from the little excerpt from mythologies that is completely misleading, poorly edited, and very confusing that is included in the Rivkin and Ryan reader. So I really advise you to go to Blackboard and to check out well, the, the readings. Are, it's pretty accessible. They're not too long. Um, Roland Barthes' mythologies, I included about 40 pages. The first essay, the wrestling essay, I think it's maybe 15 or 20 pages. It's the very first essay in the book. It's a famous one. It's, I think, imminently uh, accessible, uh, comprehensible, and you know, really good place to start uh, when it comes to Roland Barthes. So Roland Barthes, in the first essay, a famous essay, The World of Wrestling, takes these, these conceptual models that have begun and can be traced back to this linguist, Saussure, and he begins applying them in really pliant, interesting, sort of plastic ways to contemporary, what is at the time, contemporary French uh, commercial culture and uh, the news, French newspapers and all kinds of quotidian, uh, everyday experiences of advertising and media. And so in the world of wrestling, what I want you to notice is that the way in which Saussure is trying to talk about this abstract, ad, these abstract qualities of language becomes in a way sort of made a little, the, the con, those, that way of seeing the world as built with, as being built up of a systems of signs, that way of seeing and analyzing through signs is adapted in Roland Barthes' essay on the world of wrestling such that we see patterns of meaning as they were are built into wrestling matches. So for example, there's basically, as I understand it, a good guy and a bad guy. Uh, the good guy is on the side of justice and the way that he becomes the good guy and the way that that drama is played out is mediated by a referee. And the referee becomes kind of a dupe in this case because we know that the bad guy is going to cheat. Uh, now, I want to just say, that when I say we know, I don't know this. I've never, well, only recently have really watched any professional wrestling to speak of, much less French professional wrestling in the 50s. But even the little bit that I have watched suggests to, suggests to me that there still are similar patterns, uh, similar dramas being played out when it comes to professional wrestling. At any rate, Roland Barthes says, okay, here's, there's the bad guy. The bad guy is going to cheat. He's going to do, so he's going to hit the other guy, the good guy on the head when the referee's not watching, maybe before the match even begins. He's going to violate the rules. The referee's not going to see it. The crowd, as this, the, the witnessing, the collective unconscious, if you will, witnesses it. The crowd then wants justice. And the rest of the drama that is, that is played out involves the good guy trying to administer justice, a referee who is not doing his job policing the match, and a bad guy who is violating all kinds of rules in order to try and win. And ultimately, one of the interesting twists that Roland Barthes observes is that at some point then it's necessary or the crowd becomes eager to witness the good guy break the rules because he's administering justice at that point. And it seems like his breaking of the rules is somehow legitimate in order to uh, exact revenge on his coward, cowardly opponent. Okay. So Roland Barthes writes that each moment in wrestling 
is like an algebra which, in, which instantaneously unveils the relationship between a cause and its represented effect. He goes on to write, what is thus displayed for the public is the great spectacle of suffering, defeat, and justice. This is page 10 in the PDF, page 17 in the original for mythologies. Wrestling presents man's suffering with all the amplification of tragic masks. The wrestler who suffers in a hold which is reputedly cruel, an arm lock, twisted leg, offers an excessive portrayal of suffering, like a primitive paeta he exhibits for all to see his face exaggeratedly contorted by an intolerable affliction. It is obvious, of course, that in wrestling, reserve would be out of place, since it is opposed to the voluntary ostentation of the spectacle, to this exhibition of suffering, which is the very aim of the fight. That is why all the actions which produce suffering are particularly spectacular, like the gesture of a conjurer who holds out his cards clearly to the public, suffering which appeared without intelligible cause would not be understood. A concealed action that was actually cruel would transgress the unwritten rules of wrestling and would have no more sociological efficacy than a mad or parasitic gesture. On the contrary, suffering appears as inflicted with emphasis and conviction for everyone must not only see that the man suffers, but also and above all understand why he suffers. So what we see Roland Barthes doing in the world of wrestling is explaining, you know, recognizing, observing all the ways that a system of signs is built into this particular cultural milieu and context such that those signs are readily understood by the, the enthusiasts who flock to the arena to witness the spectacle. And here we have the roots of Ferdinand de Saussure's structuralist enterprise, his, his vision of language as a system of signs being transformed or used in a transformative fashion such that a language of signs is seen as built into this vast, uh, enormously popular cultural milieu and where the enthusiasts are the active participants in the reproduction of that sign system. Here's the way that the scholar Barbara Johnson defines a sign in her essay, Writing. And by the way, writing, uh, what I'm reading you, appears in the Rivkin and Ryan Reader, page 341 in the original, which uh, should mean that in the PDF, it is, let's see, Oh, probably around page 37, sorry, 360 in the PDF thumbnail. Uh, this is Barbara Johnson writing about Saussure and the fallouts from the structuralist perspective. Uh, this perspective involves viewing the system as a set of relations among elements governed by rules. The favorite analogy for such systems is chess. Whatever the particular properties of an individual man, ivory, wood, plastic, the man is involved in a system of moves and relations that can be known and manipulated in themselves. From a structural point of view, there is no difference between ivory and plastic. There is difference between king, queen, and knight, or between white and black. So Sir's most enduring contribution has been that his description of the sign as the unit of the language system. The sign is composed of two parts, a mental image or concept, the signified, and a phonic or graphic vehicle, the signifier. The sign is thus both conceptual and material, sense and sound, spirit and letter, 
at once. The existence of numerous languages indicates that the relation between signifier and the signified in any given sign is arbitrary. So sort of makes this point, of course, as well. There is no natural resemblance between sound and idea, but once fixed, the relation becomes a convention that cannot be modified at will by any individual speaker. Now I want to pause here and make an observation. What Barbara Johnson has just pointed out, okay, that the sign is both conceptual and material, sense and sound, spirit and letter at once. Those are her words is one of the most accessible ways for understanding what Derrida is going to say, okay? The analogy that is helpful to me to make here is to think about a foundational religious text like the Bible. The Bible, on the one hand, is supposed to contain the words of God. And God said to Abraham, dot, dot, dot. God said to Moses, dot, dot, dot. Okay, and then we have God's words. We're not hearing God, but we've been given the material copy of his words. But his words re remain immaterial. They remain spirit. They remain, we're supposed to imagine them being spoken as if spoken to Abraham. You know, uh... I'm sure there's some jokes about this, you know, what, what does God's voice actually sound like? Or the old conundrum about the, the idea that, well, of course, the Bible wasn't actually written in English. Some of the older copies might be, you know, Hebrew. We, we got the Greek, I think the Septuagint, is that the one that's in Greek, translated from Hebrew? I don't know, you know, they're, they're, but uh, and then the Aramaic, and I think that in some copies of, of the Torah, as Jews would say, the Old Testament, there are words that are so old that uh, we don't actually know how to translate them. At least that's what I've been told. But the word of God is sacrosanct. Saussure has said, I'm talking about speech. That's what I'm going to base my rules on. I'm not going to concern myself with writing. I'm not even going to concern myself with objects in the real world. And, not only, and even writing in the real world, I don't want that. I want you to think of sound image. Think of a sensory experience beyond language. And Derrida is going to come along and say, aha, this reminds me of something I read in Plato, in Plato's Pharmacon, where, now let's think of what Plato is. We've said, remember Saussure is, his words, his language is, exists in transcribed notes from his lectures taken by his students. So his book, which we read as if he wrote it, he didn't even write. His students ostensibly recorded his words in writing and then wrote his book for him. So even his language, his speech is beyond us, inaccessible. In the way that God spoke in the Bible and what we have is the Bible. We don't have that voice coming to us. Plato also writes a dialogue, and remember, Plato writes a dialogue in which Socrates and Plato's dialogues, of course, are, uh, transpire as if a conversation happens between Socrates and in, in the Pharmacon, I can't remember now who Socrates is talking to, the conversation involves writing versus speech, and Socrates goes on to make the argument that, of course, speech is primary. Uh, the memorized speech is better than a written copy of the speech, and he goes on and 
to explain in this dialogue with his interlocutor why speech is superior to writing, and he goes back to the found the, to an Egyptian myth involving Thoth and the invention of writing. Anyway, he ultimately says writing is was the poison and the cure, the cure for the loss of the memory, but the poison to the memory, that it ruins the very thing that it's supposed to save, something to that effect. And this conundrum is, in typical Derrida fashion, it is uh, contradictory, it is paradoxical, and therefore it's kind of magical and fascinating and interesting and fun to play around with, especially because for Plato, that paradoxical aspect is sort of glossed over and for Derrida, this is the tendency that will happen over and over and over again in Western philosophical thought, where there is an ideal that is always beyond God's, it's like God's voice. We only have the copy that has fallen into our hands of a text that tells us what God said, not the voice exactly. As with Plato, we have a copy of the dialogue that supposedly happened in speech between Socrates and his interlocutor. And even within that dialogue, we have Socrates insisting that speech is better than writing, even though we only get to that dialogue because Plato writes a book that contains the spoken dialogue in it, so on and so forth. There's this repeated pattern of the repeated pattern of the repeated pattern of speech being privileged, being preferred, being uh, given uh, uh, a special quality attached to it and the fantasy of an immediacy and an authority that is denied to writing. And Derrida wants to twist this binary and wants to play with it and torque it such that uh, we begin to question the very basis, the, the very foundations of the foundational thoughts that contribute to the binary to begin with. So I'm going to wrap up this first edition of uh, Literary Theory COVID-19 Spring 2020 podcast by quoting Barbara Johnson again from her essay, Writing, which is in the Rivkin and Ryan Reader. It's on page 343 in the original. That should be around page 362 in the PDF thumbnail. She writes... It, of uh, Derrida, Western philosophy has analyzed the world in terms of binary oppositions. This is Plato's, uh, sorry, this is Derrida's critique of Western philosophical thought writ large. 
Western philosophy has analyzed the world in terms of binary oppositions, mind versus body, good versus evil, man versus woman, presence versus absence. Each of these pairs is organized hierarchically. The first term is seen as higher or better than the second. According to Derrida, the opposition between speech and writing has been structured similarly. Speech is seen as immediacy, presence, life, and identity, whereas writing is seen as deferment, absence, death, and difference. Speech is primary, writing secondary. Derrida calls this privileging of speech as self-present meaning, uh, this privileging of speech as self-present meaning, he calls logocentrism. I hope to return to some of these de details, these ideas, in the next episode of our podcast. Please join me on Discussion Board. Email me. Let me know how you're doing. My thoughts go out to all of you and your families and loved ones during what is an extremely difficult time. In the next podcast, I will tackle Derrida with a little bit more specificity and continue to talk about post-structuralism looping back to include thoughts about Saussure, Roland Barthes, and the like. I hope you're all doing well. Stay healthy. Talk soon. This is Ramsey Scott signing off. <laughs>